good. Thank you for your attention. A couple of thoughts on, Chit, uh, on Dhamma Nupassana. Um, besides the big perspective of which I spoke yesterday morning, the bringing together of the Sutta's appeal to basically consider every content of mind as a possible object or process of investigation revealing patterns that can be understood and that form the grist for our process of insight a process that is not just uh, relegated to formal meditation practice, but it is clearly a contemplative task. Yeah? Insofar uh, as this contemplative task happens also outside of the meditation hall, or hinges in fact on my willingness to engage with um, states, not just when they o technically occur in my meditative practice here. Um, I think gives an idea of the scope of Dhammanupassana uh, and makes it structurally somewhat different from the other three um, grounds of investigation. Um, insofar as you can't cleanly map this fourth of the Satipatthanas into a, a meditative instruction. However, you can turn it into a contemplative uh, instruction. And that's where the second definition of Dhamma comes in. When we understand Dhamma not as phenomena, not as the actual object or state, but when we take the term Dhamma in its second meaning as headings in Buddhist teaching under which we are encouraged to consider our own experience, namely the headings of the five aggregates, the five khandhas, materiality, feeling tone, perception, formations, or the um, sankharas, there's still a lack of a really good translation for this, and uh, sense consciousness. Those would be headings we are encouraged to particularly investigate whenever it feels like self. Yeah? The whole teaching of the khandhas is geared towards an understanding of impersonality. A teaching that we in the West do not make so much of as we are basically told uh, that this is important in the suttas. The suttas have a huge amount of material on these five khandhas and all of this material is trying to drive one single message home, namely that what feels like me, what feels like self, what feels like my person is in fact a highly dynamic process that can be, uh, would gain, investigated and viewed under five different specific aspects that comprise this experience. All of my experience can be seen under these five headings and these five khandhas uh, are the recommended vantage point to investigate into what feels personal, what feels me, what feels mine, what feels myself. So the whole teaching on the khandhas are basically there to drive home the uh, lakana of impermanence, the characteristic uh, of uh, impersonality. Yeah. 
There are other examples of headings in the Buddhist teaching which we are encouraged to particularly use to look at our experience, investigate, understand, hold our experience. So, <clears throat> the uh, ayatanas obviously are a, a big theme, the realm of the six internal and external senses, um, <clears throat> which is one of the big models of how experience is construed. One is the five khandhas, <clears throat> which if you look at them, interestingly, they have um, you know, they have one-fifth of those khandhas is, is material, is concerned with the physical, is with, concerned with the, the somatic world that we inhabit. And four-fifths, the four khandhas, four remaining khandhas are all concerned with <clears throat> nama aspects of our experience, with mentality aspects of our experience. If we switch <clears throat> to another map of, for I experience, uh, if we look at the ayatanas, the picture is reversed. We have six sense spheres there, and only one of the sense spheres is relating to mind. All the five others are relating to our somatic senses, like seeing, uh, hearing, tasting, uh, touching, yeah. and um, uh, smelling. So we uh, have a, a strange set of two maps. One, of, one map looks at our world from predominantly physical terms, which is the map of the ayatanas, and the other map is the map of the khandhas, which uh, looks at our world from a predominantly mental point of view. How these two maps kind of coalesce is one of the big mysteries in Buddhism, um, but they do both work. You know. So we're encouraged under the heading of Dhammanupassana to approach our experience under these specific headings. What is the body feeling? What is the body seeing? What is the body hearing? What is the body's experience of taste, of smell? Um, and what is, evidently, what is our response to this? What is gets triggered by this? How much of my reality is substantiated by sense contact, upon which build perception, upon will bitch, uh, build cognition? Yeah. That's a very strong part of our world just in the way we differ in our sense experience, is to some degree profoundly uh, influential for how we perceive, and let alone how we conceive of the world. Support for this theory comes from very unexpected corners. Um, uh, neuropsychiatry fin finds out a few things, so particular, particular types of delusion um, coming up on the psychiatric radar, suddenly find uh, correspondences that people who, uh, say, deny agency, yeah. or do not recognize their own image in the mirror, uh, are much more prone to um, delusions of uh, paranoia, basically that other people do things with them, that they do not acknowledge their own impulses, because they cannot necessarily feel their own doings because they can feel not part of their bodies may not be felt or or they do not perceive themselves so in f in fact they find that actions take place without their doing yeah. Yeah. and that makes them more prone to all kinds of uh, delusional um, uh, 
constructs on a conceptual level which can become quite plausible. And it's easy to understand if it feels in a particular way, if your senses seem to tell you one thing, you obviously perceive things in that way. And it's very easy to see that some of those perceptions could easily feed into notions of a world, me being, you know, remote controlled by the mothership or so, um, is more likely to occur in my mind if I don't actually feel my own will impulses, if I don't experience um, agency in my life. So that uh, cognitive con constructs, like any delusional, any paranoia is a cognitive construct, it entails a lot of conceptual effort to maintain a delusion, it's not an easy piece of work. Yeah? And at the same time, we all know if you've met people with with delusions of a, of, a, of a grand scale, you know there's nothing as permanent in the universe as a really solid paranoid delusion. You know? Whatever you talk to such people, whatever you argue, will only become ammunition for such people for the corroboration of their particular brand of delusion. You, know? you cannot argue somebody deluded out of their position. That's a very common experience if you happen to meet such people or work with such people or um, have been raised by such people. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to argue somebody out of their position because every argument you produce is very likely to reinforce an already preconceived position, which is um, beautifully defended insofar as it will downplay, screen out, completely uh, deny anything counter to the assumed perspective. And it, by, you know, on, on the other hand, it will do just about every bend, every trick, every contortion to make use of <clears throat> whatever you put into that system to be useful. Yeah, for the support and the validation of a particular position. It doesn't just happen with, you know, clinically diagnosed people. It happens, frankly, to all of us. You know, we, we may be getting, getting away with it in, in terms of clinical psychiatry, but we all uh, display this uh, certain preponderance to favor a perception of reality that supports our concepts of reality. Yeah. Uh, just a look in cult into culture or into politics will give you ample of evidence for this procedure. If you f think you know this world is is more safe with more guns, then you will just basically um, find enough evidence. Every incident where people <clears throat> come to harm through guns will be proof for you that you, you know, for every bad guy out there with a gun, you need two good guys with a gun. That's the solution to the problem. If you have a different type of view, then you may come to a different kind of interpretation of this fact. But how this interpretation takes place is largely contingent on what you already perceive to be true, to be, to be you, to be the problem, to be the solution. All this is very, very derivative stuff. At the bottom of it, usually a sense contact is a very simple perception and the arrangement of a number of those perceptions into a particular image of what you would call, you know, this is what's happening here. And it's very difficult to dislodge us from this position. Very, very difficult. It takes a lot of trust to be allowed to 
to allow other people to challenge one's perceptions. It's generally something we only do if we are having a lot of faith, if we experience a lot of trust in, in, in intimacy, or um, if something really shattering happens to us, well, big crises or big moments. And most of us will remember that in some way or the other. We usually do not easily give up our paradigms of reality. And it's one of the painful things in uh, spiritual practice that uh, it is supposed to bring about an, uh, an upsetting of your paradigms of perceptions. You cannot maintain your perceptual world cleanly and solidly and continue to progress on the spiritual path. So the spiritual path is in some way um, designed to upset some of your treasured perceptions, particularly perceptions about yourself, perceptions about how you are being perceived, uh, perceptions of who you are, what the path or what your practice consists of. All this will come in some way under scrutiny in the course of your practice. Um, you cannot maintain, basically, your notion of intactness throughout your meditative career. That is simply impossible. If you try, and we all try, that's the honest answer, because um, none of us likes this, if we, we try, generally we can <coughs> delay the, the dawning of the invalidity of some of our self-percepts. We can delay this and usually make the experience a more dramatic one, uh, more fraught by crisis rather than by a soft peeling of, uh, or a soft shedding of our skins. Um, sometimes also our lives uh, are organized with that through losses or certain bouts of madness or dramatic onset of aging or um, or even if it doesn't concern us, if it concerns people who are close to us, you know, people we love who suddenly um, don't love us anymore or want to change their lives and we somehow uh, need to follow or or let go or we are, you know, this, their wish to change their lives has dramatic consequences for us. Um, or they go, they fall sick or um, something happens to them that we have not immediate control. Yeah. So this is usually very powerful and dramatic for us when we begin to understand um, degrees of impersonality, you know, when we really not just cognitively acknowledge, yes, things are changing, but actually let it in that not just things are changing, we are also changing. And some of that change is beautiful and measured and, you know, meanders quietly flowing. And some of that changing is rude, abrupt, unforeseen, violent, yeah. or inexorable, something just crumbles inexorably. Yeah. So once we let in that the change is not just the snow melting and the leaves changing color, but changes uh, profound reality in our lives. And we begin to reconcile with that. Usually that goes in sort of not one gentle move, but it goes into little jolts and sometimes bigger jolts. And we all, I don't like this. 
well, frankly, I would, I would like to be free through happiness. In fact, I have no, I don't see any profound statement in the Buddha which really says I couldn't be free through happiness. There's nothing theoretically speaking against this. Only the practical experience seems to say, uh, when I'm happy, I'm not really very keen on learning. I tend to say, the sky is blue, my hammock is swinging, where's the problem? You know? <laughs> uh, I seem to respond to happiness with a marked disinterest in learning, with a marked, marked um, lethargy to respond to the existential givens that, um, that I, when I'm not happy, I, I feel more starkly confronted with, and in many ways, that's why most of us come to practice in some way through forms of unhappiness. Yeah. For some of us, this ha unhappiness is, is tinged with inspiration, or it, it uh, is a gradual acknowledgement of bits that we had learned to live with, but we felt lonely with, or meaningless, or uh, just alienated from, and practice seems to hope in the prospect of a deep sense of belonging, of connection, of optimism of a vision of freedom and happiness and yet you know we we tend to even be in denial of degrees of our own suffering and sometimes we're surprised how much suffering we hold without knowing so we feel the grief or we feel um, exacerbated forms of dissatisfaction particularly in retreats this is likely to come up in some way and um Learning to reconcile with this is part of the path, is part of a practice. And that means this will be unflattering, uh, it will be painful, it will be uh, bringing me back to questions of meaning, questions of value, questions of you know, what is truly important. And this fourth Dhammanupassana obviously can help tremendously with this. It suggests to us an investigation of our lives, our experience, our self-views, our view of others, our orientation in world, along the lines of a number of concepts that have to do with, Buddha, with particular aspects of the Buddhist teaching. Um, two profound ones are the awakening factors, and the hindrances. In fact, if we compare the different Satipatthana versions, as I told you initially, there's quite a number of them. Uh, we have in the Pali, we have three. Uh, we have um, at least uh, three more entire, entire versions of the Satipatthana. We have bits of it in um, <clears throat> the Prajnaparamita texts. We have um, bits of it in the Sariputra Abhidharma. This is a an Abhidharma tradition of one of the other early Buddhist schools, the Dharmaguptaka school. We have a number of these Satipatthana texts, and if we look at their fourth Satipatthana and hold this together, we realize that all the lists are different in there. There's two lists which are occurring in all of the extant known texts, and these lists are the awakening factors and the Nivaranas, the hindrances. All of the other lists have no congruence. In some country, in in many of them, the ayatanas are in. In the, the Theravada version, the Pali version from the Theravada tradition, has 
the most comprehensive set of lists. It's the only one that has the Four Noble Truths in there. Maybe just as a sort of footnote on this one. So we can say from this, the probably most crucial two lists in this fourth Satipatthana are the hindrances and the awakening factors. Given the fact that they are in all extant editions of the text to be found, we can assume that they go back to probably the earliest layer of transmission of this particular sutta. Which, as I believe I told you, is a puzzle. Yeah? I, it is my conviction that the Buddha never gave the Satipatthana Sutta in the, f in the shape we have it today. It is a mo mosaic. It is completely authentic insofar as it consists of bits of teaching that the Buddha has given. We can find these bits of teaching in other places in the discourses. But the Sutta in itself is clearly something that has grown together and is felt by the earliest disciples of the Buddha. Um, it is necessary that we coalesce these different bits on Satipatthana teaching into one grand discourse. And I believe the Mahasatipatthana to be the outcome of that project, which um, I'm not really Indologist enough to venture a, a plausible guess, but this will have happened somewhere in the, the first few hundred years. It will have happened somewhere in those 300 years between uh, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha's death in around the year 400, and the writing down of the uh, canon, probably in the first century in uh, in Sri Lanka. So somewhere in this 300 years, probably even less, uh, will have been the time when uh, the earliest disciples coll collated all these bits and pieces on Satipatthana and cast them into what we have now as the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. Um, I would expect this to actually have happened fairly early. Not in his lifetime, but maybe a couple of generations afterwards. This is a, just a guess. Yeah. Um, there are varying theories circulating on this, but there's a good there's a good chance that this is a reasonably accurate guess. So we, we have something completely authentic, and yet it's packaged in a way it probably wasn't packaged. So I don't think the Buddha ever told monks when they were going to meditate, here, my boy, this is the Satipatthana Sutta, do it. Yeah? It didn't work that way. Yeah? That's why we probably also not do it that way. We, we tease out bits and pieces, we identify a sequence, and we are trying to keep mapping our own experience and see, keep rubbing against these terms. And um, this is probably how practice has happened right from the beginning. It is very clear that highly different individuals would engage with this form of contemplative exercise. And what came out was probably that these different individuals have, as they do now, uh, had results from this practice, but in mildly different, with mildly different inroads. Yeah. They all had to be their own cooks, you know, good cooks for their own minds. And by understanding how their minds were affected by a particular practice, this would be then helping the further mapping, the further uh, inroad into uh, unraveling the workings of one's own mind. One way of using these Fourth, the Satipatthana, unlike what I suggested yesterday as a grand contemplation, 
you, as a meditative exercise, you can just use it as a sort of check-in tool. It's kind of like you, you take your own temperature, yeah? you kind of, you're dipping in, you know, kind of doing this or whatever you do in this country here. Just take your, take your temperature and say, okay, awakening fact is what's happening here. How much sati is happening? How much investigation is happening? How much energy is happening? How much piti is happening? How much pasadi is happening? How much samadhi is happening? How much upeka is happening? Just checking in. So like you check in, how awake am I? Where is my weight going? Once you've done the body bit, you just kind of check into the, the climate of the mind and see, okay, can we discern these awakening factors right now? Is this piti? No, this is back pain. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Can I investigate that? Yes, you can. Yeah. Does it take energy? Yes, it takes energy. You know, is there energy? Yes, there is energy. So you know, this kind of very, very hands-on uh, acknowledging these categories and looking whether you have anything corresponding going to these categories in your current experience. So taking it into the moment and um, bringing that in, bringing those questions in, and then identifying. Yeah. Maybe this is not boredom. Maybe this is indeed pasadi, a plateauing of increasing stillness, less sensory input, less discursive responsiveness. It's not quite full-blown samadhi, but it's really quite pleasant. Uh, and the question, am I doing it right? Uh, maybe just a disturbance, but actually underneath it's quite still. Maybe this is pasadi. So it's good to be able to keep that away from boredom be able to distinguish that from boredom. It's not awakening, but you know, we're somewhere on the map. That's, that's good to know. The same obviously uh, applies to the hindrances. You know, if you, obviously you can complain about your thoughts and say, well, it's still not still and so forth. But when you recognize recurring patterns of thought, just acknowledging this is desire or this is complaining or this is this is me criticizing, or this is me speaking from a perspective of uh, I know better, or this is me speaking from the perspective I'm the victim here, I'm not getting what I deserve, you know. Yet again, another situation in which I am disenfranchised and I'm just not understood. You know? And you recognize, oh, okay, this is my favorite old parrot who kind of gets on his little game. I've been listening to you for the last 40 years and you have not really made me happy. You know, why should I listen to you now? I can't stop you, but I also, I can simply not consent to giving my energy to you and my attention. I can simply disbelieve you because having believed enough of you, I know wh where you take me. Yeah. So acknowledging just things like that, this is a, these are hindrances. <laughs> yeah. Thought. Remember, of those five hindrances, three and a half will turn up as thought in your practice. So it's important that you recognize behind some of your thoughts hindrances. This isn't just a playful, little, delightful, uh, discursive escapade. This is desire. This is karma chanda in there. It's necessary that you recognize this and name the baby. However morally completely blameless this may appear, in terms of samadhi it's not blameless. In terms of samadhi it is basically a loss. 
if you give your mind over, if you give your attention over to a seeking gratification and pleasure from playing with thoughts that uh, in, incite you to have pleasant, warm, lovely feelings connected with uh, things you have experienced or you might experience when you finally get out here, is a desire. Now, while this is completely normal, it's completely natural, it's completely morally blameless, it's not abusive, it doesn't hurt anybody, it doesn't cost anything. (laughs) Very justifiable forms of desire. In terms of samadhi, it's perfectly uh, insalubrious. It doesn't help making the mind still. You're just wasting time with it at best. At worst, you're getting... Uh, to a place of longing and loneliness and lack and want and frustration and this kind of thing. So to recognize behind some of your thoughts, simple hindrances is, would be an aspect of, say, Dhammanupassana practice. So you dip, uh, if you want to stick, if the thermometer is not a good image, then use the litmus paper. You know, just kind of dip it in and see into the broth of your mind and see kind of, okay, what comes out? What's the pH value here on sati, dhamma, vichaya, virya, piti, pasadi, samadhi, upeka? Or what's the, you know, pH value on uh, kama, chanda, (coughs) sense, desire, vyapada, ill will, tinamida, sloth and torpor? Uh, udacha, kukucha, restlessness and agitation, vichikicha, doubt. You know, okay, got a little doubt going there. Huh? Just at the top level. Thank you very much, that's useful. We go back to the breath, yeah? something like that. It's very simple. Just like you check in, where is my weight? Where is my body? Where are my joints? How big is this? How big is this being right now here? Can I, can I feel the periphery of this being? Yeah? So you do sort of a check-in, somatic check-in, and in the same way you can add a little bit of Dhammanupassana practice by just kind of dipping into uh, the climate, the weather, the affective grounding of your mind and see, okay, what is prevalent, what is not here. Yeah? That's also good, considering absences. So please use this. I want to follow on my follow up on my promise to read you the Kachakotana Sutta, of which I spoke of last night. By the way, if some of you may have had exposure to other Buddhist teachings, uh, you may know the famous Mula Madhyamika Karikas, the uh, verses from uh, the middle, uh, a text, uh, amazing and erratic text from about the second century AD. Tributed to a, a great meditator uh, and uh, philosopher called Nagarjuna, quotes one one text, one and one only text is quoted in these verses. Uh, they're fairly naughty uh, to read. They uh, take a little bit of pondering, so they're not really bedtime reading, um, but definitely worth reading. And this famous text quotes one particular sutta. Um, and this one sutta is this sutta I'm just reading you. So, at Savati, <coughs> the Venerable Kachagottana <coughs> Gotta approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down on one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? The Buddha answers, 
This world, Kachana, for most parts, depends upon duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. This world, Kajana, is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging and adherence. By this one, with right view, does not come, but this one, with right view, does not come, become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. He does not take a stand about myself. He has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only suffering arising, what ceases is only suffering ceasing. His knowledge about this is independent of others. It is in this way, Kajana, that there is right view. All exists, Kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as a condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as a condition, consciousness comes to be. And so forth, it goes to the whole dependent arising. Such is the origin of the whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of volitional formations. With the cessation of volitional formations, cessation of consciousness comes to be, and so forth, going down the whole dependent arising in reverse sequence. Such is the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. So the sutta ends with the cessation of dukkha. Yeah, that's it. That's fairly terse and... um, you recall from last night, I think the Buddha's statement here is, is quite bold. He says, on one hand, you have uh, the teaching here uh, is called the, du- the duality that stipulates existence. In other words, um, stuff happens. And uh, the other teaching is non-existence. In other words, either nothing happens or stuff disappears. You know? And he then says... <laughs> this beautiful terse statement, you know, whoever has seen the origination of the world as it really is, does not deny, does not, does not see the notion of non-existence as valid. And whoever has seen uh, cessation in the world does not see the notion of existence as really valid. Yeah. So he completely agrees with part of either of those notions, but does not take the other part. And then he comes up with a a third position, which is basically that this is not about being and non-being, but it is about becoming, that the world comes into being in a process of becoming. In other words, the whole concept of being, that there is something that remains unchanged, does not depend on conditions, is free of attributes, is essential, that this whole notion doesn't stand. Because everything you can lay your hands on, everything you can conceive of, everything you can experience in your body, in your heart, in your mind, is finding its footing in further conditions. Conditions, again, are further conditions, further conditions. So the arising of the world, what exists, is not here because it purely 
truly is in the sense of the Greek ontos of pure being, but it has come into being by our dynamic process of becoming. Yeah. But it is real. It has taken place. It is happening. So the, the position that nothing really happens, nothing really exists, nothing really is being, because everything seems to crumble away, is also not true. Although things do cease with, in accordance with conditions, as much as they arise, actually, while it lasts, it lasts. Yeah? And it is when it lasts and when we have contact with it, we can understand its dynamic. And it is the understanding of this dynamic that constitutes our happiness and our freedom. This is a powerful teaching. So, I'll see whether I can print it out for you and have it put on the board. And other than that, you may remember where it is. It's in the Connected Discourses. It's in the Book of Causation, in the Nidanavaga, and it's the 15th Pith. And if you want to remember my personal hero, his name is Maha Kajana or Maha Kajayana. Sometimes one, sometimes the other name is used. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.